You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Department of Justice and state attorneys general have been investigating Google's dominance over the $130 billion digital advertising market for about a year. And the Justice Department is drafting an antitrust lawsuit against the company. Joining me is Jennifer Ray, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. So, Jen, do we know what charges the Justice Department is incorporating in its complaint? We really don't. The only thing that we have is just broadly that it sounds like, at least what's been reported in the news, that they're looking at advertising. And I think that's not a surprise because in Europe, Google, some of its conduct within its advertising realm has already been penalized in Europe for abuse of dominance. So that isn't surprising, but but it, it could be that they're also looking at other conduct. You know, these investigations really dive into the nitty-gritty of a company's business and, and really get into the weeds, and they could be looking at just about anything. There was a study done that gave a sort of a roadmap for what a complaint might look like. What do the study's authors suggest should be some of the components of the complaint? Right. Now, that study did focus on the advertising world. And, you know, what they really said is that at this point, through developing its own business and through acquiring other companies, Google is not only a a major displayer of ads, let's say, on, on its own websites that it owns, like Google Maps or YouTube, or just through a search when somebody's using Google to search a topic, but it also controls a lot of the products that are needed, you know, sort of across the whole supply chain to link up an advertiser with a publisher. Let's say, you know, a third-party website like the New York Times that wants to have ads displayed on its website. Um, and that because it has so much control of so many of the products needed to link a publisher with an advertiser and get an appropriate ad put onto a website or connected to a search in a website, that it's able really to extract profit out of that chain and the prices that ought to be going to the publishers and the advertisers. Um, And and they're just looking at the way that whole supply chain works from publisher to advertiser and and how Google might extract sort of, let's say, uh, 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 super competitive fees uh, out of that supply chain. And And they don't really make any suggestions with respect to what the remedy should be. Um, but, but they just show how Google has market power and how some of its practices could be considered unreasonably exclusionary uh, under our antitrust laws. Jen, does Google have market power because it's the most popular search engine, or does it have market power because it, it made acquisitions to increase its power? You know, June, it's probably a combination of both. Uh, certainly a company can gain market power by being desirable and and consumers like it. And so they gain all the business um, and they can gain a lawful monopoly in that way. Um, They can also gain market power by acquiring other entities. But the issue really is that it's just the market power alone isn't enough to violate the laws against illegal monopolization. There needs to be market power shown. and, And that's why in this paper, they focused on how to show market power, but then they need to show that there's been some sort of a conduct that can essentially leverages that market power and excludes rivals. There needs to be unreasonable conduct that's exclusionary that helps to maintain that market power. That's where it starts to cross the line. So what this paper did was it talked about the market power that Google has with certain ad products and then some of the conduct 
that might help to maintain that market power, such as exclusionary contracts with certain third parties, um, uh, a lack of interoperability with some of its functionality that might be needed for rivals. It's a way to keep the rivals out and to keep companies using their own product and maintaining their market power. So it's those two steps. And, and having that market power by itself isn't necessarily unlawful. What has the U.S. been investigating Google on? Well, it's likely that the U.S. has been been investigating Google's um, conduct and activity in an advertising market. And I say it's likely because we know that Google has already been found to have abused its dominance by the European Commission in a couple different areas. And one of those areas is advertising. So it's kind of um, handing some suggestions, so to speak, to the Department of Justice, which started looking at Google after the European Commission had already drawn its conclusions. Um, Our laws for monopolization are different from the European Commission's rules against abuse of dominance, but there are a lot of similarities and the same kind of conduct can violate laws on both sides of the ocean. So if the conduct violated Europe's laws, there's a possibility it also violates U.S. law, and it certainly seems like that would have been a good place for the Department of Justice to start. Uh, it doesn't mean that they stopped there. You know, you know, once they issued what's called a civil investigative demand, which is like a large subpoena, they're now getting into the company's documents, emails, text messages, things like that, and they're looking at the way they operate and do business and the decisions they make, and, and they could find some other area uh, that Europe didn't focus on that they also believe uh, could be an example of, of Google you know, exercising its dominance in an improper manner. So, Jen, they're in the drafting stage right now, but does it seem likely that they will, in fact, file the lawsuit? Well, it, it makes it pretty likely that it's going to bring a lawsuit. It will draft a complaint uh, and, and get itself prepared to go to trial if it does believe that the law has been violated. Once that complaint is drafted, of course, there could be a settlement. I mean, this is what happens in most cases, not just when a company is being investigated for violating the antitrust laws, but also, let's say, when a merger is being investigated for potentially violating antitrust laws. The Department of Justice could conclude, yes, that it does, but then the companies can offer up a settlement that can get filed along with that complaint or after that complaint. So if the Department of Justice does draft a complaint, get itself prepared to go to trial, there could be a settlement before it goes any farther than that. Or, in fact, that complaint could get filed in court and it could start litigation. Is it surprising at all that this might be happening during the pandemic? Or do you think that most of the work most of the investigation was done well before. Well, I think the investigation was started well before. I mean, I mean, this was this was all happening and all in the cards and, and on the way when the pandemic pandemic happened. It just happened to occur, I think, in the middle of this investigation. But the Department of Justice and the FTC, for that matter, uh, which is investigating Facebook, made it clear that their work is continuing, maybe from home, you know, in virtually, but it's continuing, and that they weren't really dropping anything. Um, And the Attorney General, Bill Barr, did say back in December that he had hoped that the Department of Justice would be able to reach some sort of a decision with respect to what was going to happen with this investigation of Google by this year. He had said by this summer, and, and maybe that possibly could get pushed back slightly due to delays from the pandemic. But it's really been business as usual Um, with respect to the ongoing investigations at both the FTC and the Department of Justice. 
So the state attorneys general are also investigating Google. Is their investigation different? Is it parallel or is it different? It seems like from what's been reported that so far it's it's parallel as well as combined. Um, it seems that there is some sharing of information and documents between the state attorneys general and the Department of Justice and that the, the uh, state attorneys general are also sort of looking on their own. And I think that's pretty typical in, in investigations that are really big and like this Google investigation. I suspect at the end it'll probably all get combined and come together. Um, that the, if the Department of Justice files a lawsuit, that the states will join into that lawsuit. Now, they can also file their own independently um, if they want to uh, go on different grounds or don't agree with the Department of Justice, but I think it's more likely that they'll probably all end up coming together in the end. The FTC closed an investigation in 2013 into Google. Is there more evidence now, or is it a change in administrations? I don't think that it's a matter of more evidence. I think that was actually a pretty exhaustive investigation back then. But really what it is, it's a change in the, it could be a change in many things. It could be a change in the competitive dynamic, a change in the industries with respect to different companies having entered or exited, or perhaps acquisitions have, small acquisitions having been made since then. And in addition, it could be a change in conduct. You know, at that time, they closed that investigation and there wasn't really any formal a settlement with Google that required them in any legal sense to behave in a certain way. So Google has pretty much been free to behave and engage in its business in the way it's wanted to since then. And so it may be doing things differently now that uh, do violate the law that at that time they simply weren't doing. For instance, June, a lot of times exclusive, exclusive agreements can violate the law. You know, if, if a company with a dominant position or that's vertically integrated, let's say, has access to some input that its, its competitors need, um, and it, 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 or it uh, exclusively ties up an input that its competitors need, let's say with exclusive agreements, and now these competitors simply can't operate because they need access and they can't get access because there's exclusivity just for, let's say, Google, you know, this can violate the law. And it's possible that Google has agreements like this that they didn't have back in 2013. How significant would it be if the Justice Department decides to file a case against Google? Well, I think it's significant because, you know, it it raises the prospect of potentially requiring a breakup of the company. Now, I think that that's unlikely, but it's not outside the bounds of possibilities that if the DOJ does feel it needs to file a suit, uh, it has to seek a remedy, and that remedy could be something that impacts Google's business significantly, um, be it a breakup or restricting the way it does its business. Um, you know, the DOJ did try to break up Microsoft many years ago, and they were unsuccessful, but they came close. And, you know, both the Joe Simons from the Federal Trade Commission and um, the antitrust head at the Department of Justice has said that there are all sorts of remedies they could seek including breakup, and that they're not ruling that out. So it certainly raises the risk for Google if the DOJ sues and the company has to go to court. Has Google made any acquisitions in the last few years that they could divest? You know, I don't know about the time frame, and and specifically the last three years, but they have made acquisitions over, let's say, the last 10 years in this ad, I'll call it the ad intermediary space. 
you know, all of these sort of business-to-business products that are needed to connect a publisher with an advertiser. One of those acquisitions, for instance, was DoubleClick, um, which is one of these ad products. And it is certainly possible that one of the remedies the Department of Justice could seek would be the unwinding of the acquisition of one of these products needed along that supply chain. Are the House committees still investigating Google and the other tech companies? Yes, they are. And they had said that they had hoped to publish their findings, I believe, fairly soon, uh, like even this month or next month, but that has been delayed due to the pandemic. Now, you know, the House committee investigation, I think, ultimately has a bit of a different role or goal in mind than a Department of Justice investigation. I I think what they're looking at is whether or not there might be some new legislation or amendments to current legislation needed to deal with policing these big tech platforms and sort of this new digital economy that we live in. Uh, I think they've questioned whether or not the current antitrust laws that we have and the precedent that's been built up over the years is sufficient to tame the kind of behavior that the DOJ may be looking at. So their goal is, is, is more about a legislative goal than an enforcement goal. Thanks, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. Bloomberg Law Editor Jordan Rubin joins me now to discuss those historic live Supreme Court arguments that wrapped up last week. I would say overall it went very well. I think possibly even better than people expected it to go. Obviously, there were was probably one notable instance that got some people's intention of what sounded like a toilet flushing. But besides that, I think, you know, really the whole session went pretty well. The only problem that seemed to recur over and over was the justices forgetting to unmute their mute button, some of the justices. Exactly. So they're sort of experiencing the same working from home issues that all of us are working on conference calls, people unmuting. So kind of Stuff that's far from the course just happens to be in a Supreme Court argument. But on the whole, that didn't really detract too much from the substance of what was going on. And really, given all that could have gone wrong, it went pretty well. So you mentioned the one thing, the flush heard around the country (laughs) in the middle of an argument. And the justices didn't say anything about it. They just kept going. It's been taken out of the permanent record. It's been taken out of the audio files as well as the transcript. Do we know any more about who did that? Well, as you can imagine, the Supreme Court isn't coming forward saying anyone in particular is responsible for the alleged flush, the flush in question. There's some speculation perhaps that it could have been Justice Breyer, given the timing of it and how he was interacting during the rest of the argument, but we really don't know. And It's unclear whether there's going to be a serious congressional investigation into this uh, (laughs) incident. But, you know, there's some speculation. I think we look back on it kind of just as a a funny thing that happened, showing that, you know, the justices are are human, too. And if that's the worst thing that came out of this argument, I would say that kind of just underscores how much of a win the whole process was. So let's talk about some of the firsts. Well, the first time we've heard Justice Clarence Thomas speak in 10 arguments in a row. Oh, yeah, that was certainly something that and certainly not everyone was expecting. Uh, The last time Justice Thomas asked questions at an argument was last term. And before that, it was 
many years before that. And so there was some speculation, perhaps, that because Justice Thomas's reasoning that he said in not questioning during the arguments is that he doesn't want to take away time from the lawyers making their arguments. But one notable thing about the way that the court carried out these arguments was that the justices had turns to question in order. So really, there was a set time for Justice Thomas and the rest of the justices to ask questions. And so it seems that in that setting, he was more comfortable and perhaps didn't feel that he was detracting from the rest of the argument as opposed to just participating it, which he which he did. And uh, the justices piggybacked off of his questions saying, you know, following up on Justice Thomas's questions. So from their view, it seemed anyway that uh, they thought that the questions he was asking were, were good ones. He also had what I consider one of the most memorable moments. Maybe that's because I'm a fan of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> he referred to Frodo Baggins in one of his questions. Yeah, certainly another uh, thing that, you know, uh, if you had that one on your uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic Supreme Court argument bingo card, you can uh, cross that one off too. Justice Thomas referencing Frodo Baggins during a Supreme Court argument. That one came in the arguments over the Electoral College, and that wound up spunning out all these hypotheticals of could you write in a candidate or as an elector, could you wind up voting for a Frodo Baggins over the person who your state actually essentially told you to vote for. And that was a fun hypothetical that Justice Thomas came up with. So certainly by uh, the end of the session, when that argument took place, he was feeling comfortable enough to have a little fun with it, it sounds like. So the first case that justices heard, which involved Booking.com and a trademark dispute, that featured two women attorneys. Was that a first for the Supreme Court? It wasn't a first ever for the Supreme Court, but it's certainly a rarity. And if you were a uh, someone who doesn't follow the Supreme Court regularly and you tuned in for that argument, certainly you would be a bit misled into thinking that that's the normal uh, representation of gender at the court. It's certainly uh, Supreme Court arguments are a male-dominated phenomenon, but you had the first argument kicking off in this historic session of uh, two female advocates, Erica Ross from the Solicitor General's Office, representing the federal government and a veteran Supreme Court advocate, Lisa Blatt, uh, arguing uh, for the company. And so you had really two great advocates, two female advocates launching off this historic session. Uh, and they certainly did very well as the uh, test subject, so to speak, for this new process. Any other first that you can think of, Jordan? Well, there were some other advocates who were making their high court debut, interesting enough, during this session. And, you know, certainly your first Supreme Court argument is something that uh, you'll remember, but certainly all the more during this uh, pandemic, for example, in the McGirt against Oklahoma case, uh, the Oklahoma State Solicitor General, Mithin Monsonkani, was making his high court debut in that electors case that we were talking about, the Frodo Baggins case, let's call it. You had an attorney, Jason Harrow, making his high court debut. In the Trump subpoena cases, you had Carrie Dunn from the Manhattan DA's office making a debut as well. So certainly it was first for them, and I'm sure it made it all the more interesting having that being one's first Supreme Court argument. So Jordan, which case did you find the most exciting? I'd choose the arguments over Trump's financial records. Well, certainly, you know, you can't go wrong with that. These are historic cases. It's one, uh, These are arguments certainly that will be remembered for a long time, going back to looking at cases, for example, in the Nixon tapes case. This is certainly a case in line with that precedent. And so 
certainly just the fact of the historic issue before the court uh, is exciting in its own right. Um, I'll go ahead and uh, pick on a different case that maybe is a little uh, lesser known and perhaps lesser watched out of the rest of the ones in this session. And that's the one I referenced a little earlier called McGirt against Oklahoma. And that's a case that we've talked about, about whether essentially the eastern half of Oklahoma is technically sitting on Indian reservation land. And that's a case that has a lot of implications for criminal jurisdiction and civil and tax and regulatory implications. And there were four lawyers arguing in that case, as I mentioned, uh, Solicitor General Monsonhani uh, being one of those lawyers. And that was a really exciting argument and one with very interesting implications that I'll be very interested to see how the justices uh, sort that case out. And what would you say was the dullest argument? The dullest argument? Oh, wow. You know, it's, you can't you can't say that about your children, right? You know, you have to. Uh, <laughs> the dullest argument? Well, probably, you know, aside from the the flush in a case involving robocalls, that probably was not the, the most exciting issue. Maybe, you know, trying to get more attention to the issue. Maybe that's why someone did the flush. I don't know. Maybe that's a new <laughs> theory that'll be out there. But that was probably on the uh, lesser watch spectrum of all these cases. It did seem as though there was a mix of kind of high profile cases and lower profile cases that the court chose. It wasn't immediately clear in terms of every case that was put on for this session, why the Supreme Court put it on for this session. Obviously, you have something like the Trump subpoena cases and the so-called faithless electors cases about the Electoral College. Obviously, there's 2020 election implications in both of those cases, and they're very important. So it's clear why the court picked something like that. But for example, you know, the trademark case that we talked about that kicked off the session in terms of the significance of that case relative to some others that were pushed off to next term, it's not immediately clear, but it did give a nice kind of mix of different types of issues and cases to have throughout the session. See, now I would pick the trademark case as the dullest. <laughs> and I think yeah. they picked it first because they wanted something that was going to be, you know, lawyers who knew what they were doing and a topic that was pretty dull. <laughs> it is. It, I think so. But it's also one that was, I think, somewhat accessible, you know, whether you can trademark right. this generic brand. And so, you know, certainly not, you know, there's, there are complicated aspects of every Supreme Court case. But for people who are tuning into the first one, it had some fun hypotheticals in that case, too. And so it was relatively accessible for a case. Also, there were only two lawyers arguing in that case. And in the first two days of the session, there was only one case on for each session. So it did seem like the justices wanted to focus on just maybe one case each day to kind of roll out this new platform to see how it went and not start off with these high level four lawyer arguments like we saw in the second week of the session. So at the beginning of these arguments, Chief Justice John Roberts was keeping things moving. He was cutting some people off so that you could move to the next justice. But the arguments seemed to get longer and longer as the weeks went on. Certainly some of the arguments did go over the one hour allotted time. And, you know, you wonder why does an argument just have to be one hour? Certainly we're all seeing in the virtual meetings that we're having and working from home that just the fact of using this technology can make things go a little longer than they otherwise would. And so just as in other aspects of life, I think the Supreme Court is kind of just in that mess with the rest of us of technology upending things. And so 
maybe an argument did go for about a half hour longer, but you know, these are important cases. And so I think that if the justices need a little more time, another half hour to sort out something like the presidential power in the Trump subpoena cases, you know, I think we can afford to to give them that time, even if the chief justice maybe wished that some of the arguments moved along a little more briskly. Good point, Jordan. You listen to these arguments all the time, in, in person a lot of the time. Do you get a sense of the justices' personalities from these 10 arguments? You know, I think you still did. You had, you know, Justice Breyer, who's always a very lively questioner, and he spins out all these long hypotheticals that take up pages of the Supreme Court's transcripts. He didn't necessarily speak for as long as he usually does, but just the fact that he's jumping into the argument and saying good morning, which not every justice and you could tell he was kind of just happy to be there. Uh, whether or not he was the alleged <laughs> flusher in this robocall case, he made a robocall joke about how he had an unmuting issue or some kind of phone issue during that argument. Now he had to go, and so he wasn't immediately available when the chief called on him, and he made a joke about, oh, I wasn't getting a robocall or something of that nature. So you had the justices' personalities uh, shining through. I think you have someone who, uh, Justice Breyer, you have him shining through anyway, and just as you mentioned, the chief kind of trying to keep things moving and orderly to some extent, that's his personality shining through. And so I think the answer is yes, maybe not to the extent that some of the justices might have wanted. But if you were to put the question to them, they would say, you know, it's just about kind of figuring out the issue, not so much about their their personalities. But I do think even someone who's never turned into a Supreme Court argument before did get a sense of really the serious business that the court undertakes on a daily basis. And speaking of serious business, it seemed to me that Justice Alito was consistently the most no-nonsense, no-frills questioner among the justices. Yeah, I think that there, I think that that's right. Uh, you know, I mentioned Justice Breyer and some of the other justices. They would start by saying good morning. Certainly that's not a requirement. I don't recall Justice Alito ever starting that way. Not that he was the only one, but he was ready to get down to business. He's kind of a, a no-nonsense guy. And so going back to your previous question, I think his personality shone through in, in that way as well. So the more I think about it, I really do think that the country did get a look or a, a listen anyway at the justices. I think you also got a sense of what an attorney who has argued so many times before the court, how their arguments go so much smoother, and there's a sort of a sense of respect from the justice. For example, a, a Paul Clement. Oh, for sure. You could definitely tell all the work that goes into these arguments and the respect that uh, all of these lawyers have. And listeners really did get to tune into some of these great advocates really from the start. As we mentioned, uh, Lisa Blatt is a very well-respected and longtime Supreme Court advocate. And you had an interesting mix, too, of kind of newer advocates and more veteran ones. And on the whole, everyone did a pretty good job, you know, going into it. All these lawyers know that maybe there's going to be a little more attention on these cases than there otherwise would be. Not that there isn't reason enough to be well-prepared for an argument in itself, but you could tell that everyone was, on the whole anyway, ready to rise to the occasion. And it also showed the inexperience of some of the attorneys arguing before the court. I believe it was the attorney who was arguing in the faithless electors case, who some of the justices seemed to be really frustrated with, especially Chief Justice John Roberts, because the Chief Justice asked for limiting principles. 
And, you know, he said anyone could vote. A giraffe Mm -hmm. could vote, you mean? You know, June, it's interesting you bring up this notion of a limiting principle, because I think someone who even just casually was listening to all the arguments in this two-week session, that was kind of the theme. And it's almost a theme of the court's work in general. They're looking to draw lines. Obviously, any party that brings a case to the Supreme Court, they want to win pretty much any way they can. But the Supreme Court is more interested, not necessarily just in who wins or loses a particular case, but the legal principle that's going to come out of it. And so whether it was in that faithless electors case, whether it's talking about the line or the limiting principle of congressional subpoena power into the president in the Trump subpoena cases, this was a topic that was clearly on the justice's mind during the session. And it was kind of a through line through all of these arguments. And not that that's unique to to these cases, but that shows really what the work of the court is for the most part in trying to make these clear legal rules to apply in all cases going forward. So in your Cases and Controversies podcast, didn't you speak to the lawyer who was involved in that Faithless Electors case? Yes, we spoke to Jason Harrow uh, about the the Frodo Baggins example and how it was his first time uh, arguing. And that was a really interesting insight that we got from him, too, being able to talk to someone who had just come off of one of these arguments. So that was a treat. How did he feel about how the argument went? We didn't get too much into the substance of the argument. We kind of talked more generally about the issue and what it was like arguing at the court. You know, I think it seemed unlikely coming out of that argument that the justices were going to grant these electors the ability to vote for whoever they wanted, uh, or to put it differently, it seemed unlikely that the justices were going to prevent states from taking steps to make sure that electors vote in the way that their states actually wanted. So it might have kind of just been a a tough argument to make in some ways, you know, as a lawyer, uh, sometimes you have the, the case that's in front of you, right? And so, you know, I think searching for this limiting principle was a through line that we saw uh, throughout the week. And we saw a lot of frustrations again, you know, perhaps the most frustrated that the justices have been, or at least some of them anyway, were in these Trump subpoena cases when it was the lawyer for the House of Representatives who it seemed was perhaps unable to come up with a clear line, at least to a majority of the court's satisfaction to the line for what congressional power could be in terms of investigating the president with these subpoenas. Thanks, Jordan. That's Bloomberg Law Editor Jordan Rubin. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Rosso, and this is Bloomberg.